All right, we're in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 today. Go ahead, take your Bibles out. We're continuing through our study of the book of Daniel. <clears throat> and in this passage today, we come to a rather lengthy prayer of Daniel's. All through the book of Daniel, uh, we have uh, learned that Daniel is a man of prayer. We've seen that from the very beginning. This is a man of prayer. And yet, we've never really got a glimpse into his prayer life. We've never listened to the prayer themselves. We, we know about what he prayed for, but we never actually got a chance to see the prayer itself. Let me give you some context so you understand what Daniel's situation is. The situation is very important. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 reads this way In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Okay, now let me translate that for you. Daniel was about 80 years old. And he was right around that time in his life when he was thrown in the lion's den. So at this point in the prayer, we're backtracking just a little bit in the, in the narrative of Daniel's life. Daniel has lived for nearly 70 years as a captive in Babylon. For nearly 70 years. He was taken as a young teenager. He became a wise man, one of the highest rankings in Babylon. For 70 years, he's about to get thrown in the lion's den, that great story we studied a handful of weeks ago. And he's in his 80s. Remember we talked about, Daniel's is a story of faithful obedience over a long period of time. Day in, day out, from a teenager pursuing God, right? Now, Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, it says this, In the first year of his reign, that's what we just mentioned in, in verse 1, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, let me translate that again for us. So Daniel is sitting studying his Bible one day. And you know, at that time, he, he didn't have a, a book like this. He had handwritten scrolls. And Daniel had access to the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. If you turn back in your Bibles just a little bit, you will find that you have a book called Jeremiah in your Bibles. That's the prophet Jeremiah. That's the scroll Daniel was reading. Before it was in a book, it was a scroll, okay? So Daniel's having his quiet time in the morning one day, and he's reading from, from Jeremiah, and he comes across Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. It says, this whole land, says the prophet, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, speaking of Israel, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years, so Daniel's reading that, and he's saying, okay, wait a second. Jeremiah the prophet, back in the day, I remember that guy. I was a little kid when I, when I remember hearing him. Jeremiah the prophet, he said that Israel was going to be taken over, taken captive by Babylon for 70 years. That was what God had spoken through the prophet. Now, it's nearly 70 years later. Israel had been taken captive, just like Jeremiah had said. Nearly 70 years has passed. And now, in this prayer, what you're going to see is Daniel calls on the word of God. And he says, God, you said it. You said it was going to be 70 years. So now I'm praying for the fulfillment of what you said. Because at the end of 70 years, we're supposed to go back to Israel. And I've been waiting my whole life to go back to Israel. And I want my people to go back to Israel. So this is a prayer of Daniel after 70 years calling on the word of God and saying, God, will you fulfill the word you said because you said it, so I believe you. Now, can we go back to Israel? Now, in this passage, we're going to come across. 
I actually thought for a, for a while, I thought I was preaching on all of Daniel chapter 9, and luckily it's only Daniel 9, 1 to 19, which is the prayer section of this chapter. Next week, Kenson will open up a very fascinating passage on the rest of Daniel 9. And I'm glad I can focus on the prayer because there's so much to glean from this. Honestly, this prayer is one of those, I, I don't think I've ever spent so much time just reading this particular prayer in Scripture oh, we could study this for weeks. There's so much to pull from it. But what I've tried to do is pull out three aspects of prayer that I think are very, very helpful for us when we think about our own prayer lives. As I go through these three aspects, what I wanna ask you is, Daniel's prayer is unique to Daniel and his circumstances. But there's some truths and aspects of how he's praying that ought to be true of us as we pray. We're praying to the same God. We're men just like Daniel, men and women. We're, we're flesh and bone just like there's nothing that Daniel had that was more special. We're, we're, we're just like Daniel was. How do we pray? Are the qualities that made this prayer so powerful true of us? So three aspects, and I want to see if we can uh, see if they're true of us. So let me read to us the entire prayer, and then I will pull out those three aspects. Daniel 9, starting in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God. So that's after I realized it was 70 years. I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Pause. Notice the fervency of his prayer. This is not a just quick, before you fall asleep, uh, you know, knock off a quick prayer. This is, with sackcloth and ashes, this is an intentional pursuit of God. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We, notice the first person aspect of this, we, I'm included in this. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, and those who are near, and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Notice, that's the second time he uses that language. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. 
Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Ooh, that's a good prayer. Three aspects from this prayer I want to pull out. Number one, Daniel's prayer is covenantal. Okay, we're going to walk through that, but I want you to remember this. It's important language. Daniel's prayer is covenantal. If you look at Daniel's prayer, he's regularly going back to the agreed-upon relationship between God and the people of Israel. He's calling upon the agreed-upon terms and definitions of what that relationship will look like. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Right at the beginning of that prayer, he says, this is the God I'm appealing to in this prayer is the God who keeps covenant. Now, everything that I'm going to say follows from that premise in my life. I know you're a covenant-keeping God. Therefore, I have the boldness to come before you in prayer. Now, what does covenant mean, okay? Very important biblical language. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to know this terminology. It's very important. A covenant is a relationship that God enters into with his chosen people. So all through the Old Testament scriptures, we see God, the the Hebrew way of saying is that he cuts a covenant. He literally, it's like he cuts a covenant. He's forming this covenant with his people. When he called Abraham, he he agreed upon a covenant with Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to establish an entire nation, as many as the stars in the sky from your lineage, okay? And here's the agreed upon relationship. And then God formed a covenant with him right there. God formed a covenant with Moses in the wilderness. We call that the Mosaic covenant, when God gave the law to Moses. And what was the the terminology? It was, Moses, I will be your God, and here's the terms and the conditions of this relationship. Here's who I'm going to be. This is my commitment to you. This is my character. This is my quality. This is who I expect you to be. And if you break these laws that I give you, Moses, here's the penalty and the punishment in terms of this covenantal relationship of what will happen. God cut a covenant with David. And all through the Old Testament, we see these covenants. The covenant is like a holy contract that God makes with his people that define the relationship between God and his people and define the rules and the responsibilities of both parties. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse one. This is from a different book in the Bible, back in the days of Moses. We read, and if you faithfully, this is part of the covenant that God made with Moses. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I commanded you today, the Lord, will God will, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. So what's the bounds of this covenant God made with Moses? If you follow all the laws I give you, you're going to be a city on a hill. And the nations are going to flock to you to find out about God. But then it goes on, Daniel chapter 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and will overtake you. And then he lists out the curses that will come upon the people of God. If they choose not to follow his ways and choose not to honor his law, there's blessing and there's cursing. 
And that's the relationship that's part of the covenant. So how was Daniel's prayer covenantal, right? If you look at the words he prayed, how, how did he appeal to the relationship that God had established with the people of God? Well, it's written all the way through. Consider verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath, which we just read about, the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. You see what he's doing right there? He's saying, God, I know your covenant you made with us. And all the problems we've had as a people and, and the reality that we're not in Jerusalem right now, but we were taken captive, that's a just act on behalf of a righteous and holy God who keeps covenant. We're here because we transgressed your law. We broke the covenant and now we're paying the consequences for it. See, it's a covenantal prayer. He's acknowledging the reality of the relationship between him and God. And he's saying everything that's taking place is true and just on these terms. How about when he gets to talking about the nature of God? That's very covenantal language as well. Daniel chapter nine, verse four again. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He's calling out the characteristics of God. Verse seven, to you, O O Lord, belong righteousness. See, when you pray this type of language, it's covenantal prayer. You're, you're, You're appealing to the truth of who God has claimed he is when he made a covenant with you as a follower of Christ. God, you are righteous. I know that. These are qualities about you. Verse nine, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. See, when you pray these truths back to God, what you're doing is you're, you're reminding yourself of the covenantal promises God has made to you. One of the things we do regularly when we do prayer together as a church family is I'll have us take about five minutes and just shout out. It will t- it, it, we're in a quiet circle. If we're on a Zoom call, we're on Zoom. And we'll shout out individual words or phrases that remind us of the covenantal nature of our relationship with God. And we'll take a good five minutes to do it. And we'll be sitting in that room and you'll hear things like this. Holy, just, Alpha and Omega, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth were, you existed. You breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. You're our redeemer. You're our intercessor. God, you are Trinity. And we just call out all these characteristics of God. Now, what are we doing when we're doing that? We're we're praying covenantally. We're calling on the characteristics of God of who he made himself known to us. And we're saying, if this is who you are, now our mind is shaped properly to approach you. And now we can think right about how we pray. And we're asking God, God, in light of these truths of you, will you form our, before we even come to you with the stuff we need praying for, remind us who you are because we forget and then we start asking you for silly things. So remind us of the covenantal nature of our God. Just like Daniel, you're under a covenant, but you're not under the same covenant as he was. You're under a far greater covenant. You're under a covenant with God that the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to. In fact, the prophets in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, who he was reading, he said this about our day that we're living in today under the covenant that Jesus made. Jeremiah said this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's Jeremiah 31, verse 31. A new covenant's coming. And what's that covenant gonna be like? He says, I will write the law in their hearts. 
I will write it on their hearts. You as a follower of Christ are living in the days of the new covenant. Did you know that? And what that means is that there's this covenant that you live under where you can appeal in your prayer to the covenantal relationship that God has entered into with you. This is remarkable. This should change your prayer life if you're beginning to get this. What are the terms of this covenant? The terms of the covenant are not the same as the terms of the covenant for Daniel. Daniel sinned and then had to face the covenantal consequences of breaking God's law, 70 years of exile in Babylon. When you sin, you don't face the covenantal consequences of your sin. Do you know why? Because someone else faced it on your behalf. See, feel this freedom. Like this, this, if you get this right now, it's like weight coming off your shoulders. It changes everything. Think about the, the stuff you're going through in your life right now and then process it in light of this. When you break God's commands, which we're getting to the confessional aspect of Daniel's prayer in just a moment, which we all do, when you doubt, when you, just, you fail, when you think wrong, when you're short-tempered, when you're angry, when you break the covenantal requirements of the covenant that you've entered into when you decide to follow Jesus, God says, I see you breaking the commands and I pour all of the just wrath that is owed to you for breaking that covenantal relationship on one person. And it's not you, it's on Jesus. And what that means is that you live in the freedom. That's why Galatians 6 says, for freedom we've been set free. It's this free relationship with God where every bit of penalty we owe has been laid on Jesus our lamb that was slain on our behalf, and now we walk in the victorious life of calling upon that reality in prayer. You see, and so in our prayers, we call back upon the covenant relationship with God, and we say, God, I know this is true. It's all been paid for. How good is this? Thank you, Jesus, for paying my debt. Now listen, listen to what Romans chapter nine says, or Romans chapter eight. Who shall separate us from this love of Christ? This is, this is covenantal language. Who shall separate us from this love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No one in all these, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you hear that? You're more than a conqueror for him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, that's the covenant that you're in with Christ. When you believe in Christ, there is nothing that can separate his love for you. So how do you apply this? When you pray in Jesus' name, you bring all of the stuff that you're going through and you filter it through this new covenant with God, through Jesus. Lord, I'm doubting right now. I'm in a season where this, this is just hard. I'm doubting. But your word says, God, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So now, God, I'm calling on your word. You said you'd carry me through to the end, and I'm doubting right now, and if I lean on my own understanding, I'm in a whole lot of pain, but God, you are the one who carries me through, so I'm calling on that covenant. Do you see that? Do you see that? That's what Daniel's doing here. He's calling on the covenant, and you are under a better covenant. You call on that covenantal language in prayer. Number one, Daniel's prayer was covenantal. Number two, Daniel's prayer is confessional. I don't know if you saw this. When I was reading Daniel 9, 
did you see how much of that prayer was confessional? It, I mean, it was, it's almost like I want to speed through it. As I was reading it, I was thinking I should go faster through this part to get to the next part where he starts asking for, for stuff. That's just my, my nature, human nature. He lingers in confession and keeps repeating, we've broken your law, we've transgressed. To us belong open shame. He said that one twice. To us belong open shame. Let me read to you, chapter five and, or verse five and six from our chapter. We've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Verse eight, to us, Lord, belong open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. What's confession? Confession is what you see here. Confession is when, as Christians, we go before God and we lay our heart very bare. We, we permit ourselves to functionally be spiritually naked before God, just totally vulnerable, and just say, God, you already know the junk of my heart. You, you know it. You know everything that's in there. You know the wickedness of it. You know all the ways that sin lurks inside of this heart of Rafe Chenery. You don't need me to tell you that, but you invite me to release that to you. Most of the problems we have, just as human beings, are because we bottle stuff up on the inside. I mean, you could speak to atheist therapists that are out there and will tell you one of the key things you can do as a human is find a way to release the stuff you're carrying on the inside. Release your secrets to other people. It just like releases pressure out of your body. And now, now, we do this as followers of Christ going before a holy God. We say, God, you know everything about us already. We have nothing to hide before you. There's a pastor, Max Licato. He, he wrote this uh, wonderful little picture of what confession does. He says, confession does for the soul what preparing the land does for the field. Before the farmer sows the seed, he works the acreage. He removes the rocks. He pulls out the stumps. He knows that the seed grows better if the land is prepared. And then Max writes this. He says, confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. There's a rock of greed over here, Father. I can't budge it. And that tree, guilt, near that fence, its roots are long and deep. And may I show you some dry soil, too crusty for seed? God's seed grows better if the soil of the heart is cleared. You see that? And so... What God's inviting us into in this relationship, knowing that all the debt's been paid already, right? If, so if you get the covenantal language of this, you, in prayer, you've called on the covenant of God. God, it's all been paid for. Well, that's really freeing, isn't it? To just be really honest with you. Now, God, will you scan my heart for me and help me? Because here, look, I love you, God, but I'm a sinful human and I'm prone to some wicked thinking and wicked actions and wicked relationships. And, and if you would... By your grace, remove those stumps and those boulders from my heart that then I can chase after you even, even harder. See, this is the freedom the cross gives us. I, I think that a lack of confession in our prayer is actually symptomatic of something much deeper. So if you're hearing this and you're saying, you know, confession sounds really great and I, I'd, I'd love to incorporate a lot of this, but when you read Daniel, you say, that's a lot of confession. Like, majority of this was confession. And you say, well, that's not really how my prayer life is. I think maybe that's symptomatic of something perhaps a little deeper with our worship of the Lord. And perhaps it's because we don't fully get the covenant. 
right? Christians should run to confession. The heart of the Christian narrative is, is not that we have our act together. The heart of the Christian narrative is that we are sinners who have to constantly run to the cross for grace upon grace for sinners like us. And so if we have a lack of confession in our prayer lives, a lack of truly owning our weaknesses, and even just asking God to reveal, because we're so proud that sometimes we think we're way better than we are, and we blame everyone else but ourselves for all the problems around our lives. But if there's a lack of even asking the Lord to reveal that, it's revealing that maybe there's an issue with the way we understand the gospel. The gospel is not for self-righteous people. The gospel is for sinners who recognize they need the grace of God in their life all the time. Jesus told this wonderful parable. He said, two men, in Luke, Luke chapter 18, verse 10, he says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Tax collectors were the the sinneriest sinners of the day in Jerusalem, okay? They were the most sinful in terms of the eyes of everybody else. The Pharisee, standing by himself, the Pharisee was the pastor of the day, so the Pharisee, so I'm the bad guy in this story, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So the Pharisee says, God, thank you that I have my life together and that I I get this thing really well. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus laid this out really clear for us. There's no trying to skirt our way around. the, The heart of prayer with a holy God is confessional in nature, where we release the reality of our sin before God and then experience the fullness of him healing us. Recently, God's done a wonderful work in my own life in confession. I I got this devotional called Be Thou My Vision. It's this beautiful devotional, and it, it I've shared a handful of times with you about it from this pulpit already. But what it does is it's a daily liturgy. So each morning when I read my Bible, it first takes me on this path of preparing my heart to read the scriptures. And then after you read the scriptures, then praying the things you read in the scriptures into your life and into the life of your church and in your family. And so there's all these sections. So it'll start with a call to worship, just like I do a call to worship at the beginning of the service. I'll do a call to worship in my own prayer life. And then it'll have a moment of adoration where I read a a section of scripture that just reminds me of the covenantal language of God and I praise God for who he is. Then what it'll do is it'll pull an old Puritan prayer of confession. And you read this prayer and the heart, and then it says, "Now now pray confessionally before God. Now I'll tell you what this has done for me. For the last few months I've been praying these prayers that have been offered in this, this confession moment and asking God, God reveal it, go deeper, Like, what else is there? And then when I think I've confessed, I just sit there longer. And I'm like, ooh, like, yeah, no, there's more. If I'm honest, God, if I'm honest, there's more. The number one thing, and I'll just be honest, the thing that God keeps bringing back to me in terms of my own sin life right now is ambition. This this vein of ambition. It's such a yucky thing to mix with the pastorate. It's like, ooh, like, I don't want anything like that in the pastorate. That's the wrong thing. But then I keep getting little tentacles of it. 
And, and the thing is, I don't realize it's there in my interactions during the day because we're busy. We're talking to people. We're, we're in a relationship. I'm doing my thing in the city. I'm caring for people. But then when you get on your knees and you're confessing before God and you're saying, God, go deeper. How far does that tentacle go? And then he reveals it. And there's this moment of regularly that I've just been experiencing in a fresh way recently. This moment of going, ugh. I don't like that. And it brings you to this place of genuine brokenness before God, of saying, that's real. But then, then, when you're done with confession, every time the very next verse, the very next thing you do is pardon of assurance, or a pardon of assurance, where he, he revealed, the, the scripture you read is a verse that summarizes the fullness of the gospel. So you get to this place where you say, it's worse than I want to admit. And then you say, Jesus paid it all on the cross for me. Oh, thank you, God. Oh, I'm so grateful. This is incredible. That's the gospel. Yes, I'm more sinful than I care to admit. But Jesus paid it all on the cross for me. I have no shame to go before my church. I have no shame to go before my God. Because that's the story of Christianity. We're sinners saved by grace. And when we hide that reality from each other or when we hide it between God, we're really not fooling anybody for that long. We all know each other better than, than we like to pretend that we know each other, and God knows us better than that. And the freedom of the gospel that comes when you pray confessionally. Look, when you read Daniel 9, the main thing of Daniel 9 is confession. I mean, we, the title of this message should just be How to Pray Prayers of Confession, because that's what this is all about. And it's lengthy, and he lingers in it. And we need to form that in us as well. There's something about confession that's so true to the Christian life. It's so freeing to the Christian life. When you get to that place, then you cry like Paul, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And then you turn the page from Romans 7 to Romans 8, and you say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's how we pray, confessionally. Prayer is covenantal. Prayer is confessional. And prayer is God-centered. Daniel's prayer is so God-centered. This is where we get real tricked up a lot um, and where I think our prayer life can, can really use a bolster. Look, whenever I teach on prayer, I'm always nervous to teach on prayer because I think sometimes we can get formulaic with our prayers and you can hear me say, here's the right way to pray. And then you go home and you're like, oh, I feel like I just lost my like the intimacy I had. Now I gotta fit some structure. God loves your prayer. If you are turning to God in prayer, God is, God is pleased with that. Turn to him in prayer. There, there's not wrong prayers to pray, okay? The simplest prayer of God, like, I'm just here, okay? I'm on, my, I'm on my knees. I'm praying to you. I love you. Like, this is what's going on in my life. Will you please help me? That's a beautiful prayer. Never tire of that kind of prayer. That's called simple prayer. You should be praying that kind of prayer all the time. But we have to, we have to go further over the long haul of the Christian life. There's more to the journey than just simple prayer. And if we spend the entirety of our Christian life just in simple prayer and never progress into the next level, we're missing out on the great adventure that so many saints before us have gone down and helped us along the way. There's a lot of room to grow. Daniel chapter 9, verse 17 to 19. Listen to the God-centeredness of this. Therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. 
Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear, oh Lord, forgive, oh Lord. Pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. God is primarily interested. This is, very, this is very difficult for modern individualistic Christians to get. God is primarily interested in God's glory. God is primarily interested in God's glory. And as Christians, we need to constantly be on a journey of primarily being interested in God's glory. Because as we get wrapped up in the glory of God, we get wrapped up in the goodness of God's glory. I remember years ago, I was sharing this with somebody. I was having dinner with them, and they said, well, that makes God sound pretty narcissistic. God's interested in his glory? Doesn't that just make him the great narcissist of history? And, and I thought about that. This was years ago. I'm like, how do I, what do I say to that response? And here's what you say to that response. When someone who doesn't have glory pretends that they have glory, that's narcissism. But when he who has glory demonstrates his glory and invites you to share in that glory with him, that's not narcissism, that's God being God. His is the glory. Everyone else is is stealing the glory from the glory that he has. Now look, when we pray, when we pray, oftentimes, accidentally, or maybe immaturely, or maybe just because we're, we're not, we don't have it all together all the time, When we pray, oftentimes we're actually seeking our own glory. And our prayers actually are more just for the things we want and less about what brings glory to God. See, that should, the the anchor for your prayer life is what brings you glory, God. Look, there's a lot of stuff going on in my life. And regularly I go before God and I know what I want in my flesh. There's a lot of things I want. And I lay those things before God all the time. But then I I regulate to say, God, what brings you glory? Does that give you glory? You know, maybe it doesn't. So, Lord, here's what I'm praying now. And then I ask God, what brings you glory? God's primarily interested in his glory. And where churches and Christians get veered in the wrong direction is when we begin to think this is all about us. We begin to think what, what is, what's best for our momentary situation and not what's best for God's glory in the long haul. God's about his glory. Psalm 19, verse one, I love, John Piper does a great work on Psalm 19, verse one, a very memorable verse. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens above declare the glory of God. You know what that means? John Piper says it this way. He says, the heavens and the stars are shouting his glory to you. That's what they're doing. They're just shouting his glory to you. The, the waves on the ocean that come in constantly, here's what they're doing. Just, it's this constant influx of, see my glory? Do you see it? And then it just pounds over and over. It never stops. That's my glory on display. That's my glory on display. And the waves just keep coming. Every sunrise and sunset you see, it's, it's the master himself painting his glory for you to stand in awe. And here's the thing about a sunset. We see a sunset in a moment of time, and it's this beautiful, like, fire in the sky. And then it passes. But the sunset never passes. It's always setting somewhere. That fire is always on display. 
It's the, the bursting of the glory of God is constantly rotating around this world, never ending, fire displaying and shouting to all humanity, this is my glory. And there comes a moment in a Christian's life, there comes a moment where you see it and it clicks in your brain and you say, I was made for that. I was made for that. To know that God. To know him more than I know him now. To walk with him with more intimacy than I walk with him now. I was made to put everything in my life under the God who roars flames in the sky always. I was made for that. And when that clicks for a Christian, something takes over in your life. Where, where you can't turn back, where it really is that good, and everything begins to get painted by the glory of God, and your prayer life starts to change. You, start, you, 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 you see this shift happen in your life where there's a lot less what I want and a lot more I'm, I'll do anything you want. Do you see the shift there? Our prayers need to learn how to be God-centered. I love verse 18 of this. He says, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. See, when you get the glory of God, when you get the covenantal nature of God, when, you've con when you understand what confession is, that's the summary of it all right there. We have nothing to offer you, Lord. And if it was on our own basis, you, we have no right to even present ourselves before a holy God. But because of your great mercy that you demonstrated for us on the cross when Jesus gave his life to make our sins completely forgiven so that we could be adopted into the family. We're appealing to that mercy right now that you would have mercy on us. That's the heart of prayer. Prayer is covenantal, prayer is confessional, and prayer is God-centered. I want to invite you into something. And many of you are already a part of this. And if you're looking, what's the application for this, right? How, how, how do we live this out? Well, part of it is, Find a prayer closet in your house and get time alone to just pray with God. That's the simplest application of this. Practice this, live into it, but also do it with your community. We pray daily, and I'm always inviting you into this. And many of you participate in that. We pray at 6.30 a.m. and at noon every day on Zoom. And if you're not joining us, I, I'm guessing it's, it's not because you can't find time every once in a while to jump on the Zoom call at noon. Maybe, but for most, I don't think that's the issue. Jump on from time to time. Your church community is the place where you can grow in learning how to do this. And even if you're just listening, that's how I've learned to pray, is by listening to other prayer warriors, listening to Roberta pray. I become a better prayer because I listen to this faithful prayer warrior pray. And I'm, become, I'm learning, God's teaching me how to pray better because of her in my life. You see, this is how, how we grow. Every Sunday morning, we have a, a group of about 15 to 30, depending on the week, gathered in that hallway from 8.15 to 8.45. And what do we do? We just gather to pray. Show up to church early on a Sunday. Bring your kids. Let them run around. It's loud. That's what church should be. And come pray with us. God is doing a great work in this church. Will you join us in it?